All right, good morning, everybody. Do me a favor, grab your Bible and jump to the book of James, seven-eighths of the way through your Bible. We're going to be in James 5 today. Also, do me a favor. If you didn't bring a Bible today or you don't have one, please raise your hand and allow one of our ushers to gift you a Bible. It's yours to have and to keep. Bring it with you each week. Just throw your hand up right now where you're at, and our ushers will bring you a gift Bible that is yours. James 5. Hey, listen, guys. I want to just encourage you up front to buckle up. Today is one of those days. Today is one of those days where the message is pretty poignant. I spent the week really uh, exhaustively praying and thinking and studying, and, and, and it is just one of those messages that is going to be kind of hard to hear. Uh, here's what I would, I would tell you, though. In light of this preface, it doesn't have to be hard to hear if we adjust our attitude in our heart. But what we're going to read head on is going to be hard to hear on the surface. And so I pray this morning that you will experience the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit as the Word of God goes out, that it will not return void, but that you will encounter Jesus and that it will effectively change your life forever. All right, you ready? All right, here we go. It would be nearly impossible for you to turn on any news station over the last two weeks and miss one of two things. The first being the presidential life and legacy of George H.W. Bush, our 41st president, who passed away and was laid to rest at College Station, Texas, in his library and museum. I was... Working out at Anytime Fitness when they did the final processional where he got off the train and they brought his body to College Station and then through all the pomp and circumstance brought him into his final resting place or his internment, at least his body anyway. And it was at the library in the museum. But that was the first time I had really learned much about the George H.W. Bush Library and Museum. So I began to investigate a little more, and I found out that this library is one of 13 of its kind that the U.S. has built to celebrate a life. And in this library, it is all kinds of artifacts and papers, literature, and various other trinkets, not just of George H.W. Bush's presidency or his service to our country, but of his life. Things that he valued, things that he appreciated that were put on display. These beautiful ornate shadow boxes with descriptions of what each trinket is and, and the involvement in George H.W. Bush's life. It's a museum that people will then get to come to and walk around and see the legend that is George H.W. Bush. Kind of cool if you have an appreciation for history. 94 years this guy lived, and he has a lot of stories of his life that are represented in this museum. The other story that you've probably seen if you've turned on any news medium of any kind over the last two weeks has to do with Salvation Army. Salvation Army is a movement, it's a missional movement that began as a church of all things. Nearly a century ago, it was birthed out of a missional movement, and today, Salvation Army is one of the largest global missions known to man. It has all kinds of facets to it. It has a homeless shelter facet to it. It's got a food ministry facet to it. Salvation Army has a, a, a clothing store option to it where you can buy affordable clothing. But one of the things that Salvation Army is most known for is their humanitarian aid. Did you know that Salvation Army effectively touches over 130 countries every year? That their ministry, their mission, impacts over 130 countries. Countless millions and millions of people are impacted by their mission. 
I did some more research and I found out that 1. or about 17.1 million people consider themselves to be salvationists. They're a part of the Salvation Army movement. And then hundreds of millions of people on top of that will give to this mission every year. And when you give to the mission, their mission to give is to give away. That when they give, they give away. They're building a legacy. Today, we're going to read in James just six verses. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And we're going to read about a stark contrast between museums and missions. And we're going to be forced to ask and answer the question, is my life a museum built on a legend or a mission field created for legacy? Let me read some contrasting statements as we jump in today. Museums are a collection of stuff to marvel at. Museums are a collection of stuff to marvel at where mission is a way to give to the benefit and betterment of others. Mission is a way to give to the benefit and betterment of others. Museums are a treasury of great things from the past. Museums are a treasury of things that we celebrate from history. Mission is a journey with God in the present for the future. Mission is a journey with God in the present for the future. Museums are a way to hold on to history, to remember, to cherish. Mission is the way to make history. Mission is a way to to work in step with God to make and create history. Museum is about building a legend of ourselves. A collection of stuff that represents what we want people to think of us. Where mission is about creating a legacy for others. About making humanity better through the way that we live our lives, including how we give ourselves away. Museums are all about what we accumulate to build legends. Mission is all about what we give away to build a legacy. One of the things that we have to ask and answer right at the onset of today's message is when you do a sober judgment of your own life, when you consider how you spend your money, where you spend your time, and what you spend your gifts and experiences and talents on, what are you building? The proverbial lessons of life. Are you building a museum built on the idea that you're creating this legend of self? Or are you building a mission geared to be a legacy for the betterment of mankind? You see, we have to ask and answer this question because eternity hangs in the balance for someone. How we spend ourselves, how we invest our time, our treasure, and our talents matters. It makes an intrinsic difference for all eternity. Someone's eternity hangs in the balance based on what we're building. And today is one of those messages where no matter how I address the scriptures, I can't paint it any other way. We have got to ask and answer this question. Because it matters that much. It matters not only this side of heaven, but it matters to the heart of God. As seen throughout Genesis and Revelation and everything in between. And I want to challenge you this morning, right up front, that where you are guilty, like me, with your time, your treasure, and your talents, of being consumed with building a museum built on the legend of yourself, may you get to the place where you identify it, 
Surrender it to Jesus and repent so that you can, in turn, step into the mission that God has called you to, where you invest your time, your treasure, and your talents to create a legacy for eternity. Heavenly Father, that is my prayer this morning. Guide me, instruct me, speak through me, be in me that I might be nothing more than a vessel for you, for your good work. Quicken your word to our hearts, eliminate distractions. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be a blessing to you, Jesus. Amen. James is writing this letter up until this point to first generation, first century Jewish Christians. And you can tell this throughout his letter because he says seemingly countless times at every point of transition in his letter, dear brothers and sisters, what he's saying is, in kind, I am one of you. We are family. We're in this together. And then he's going to call them to an action, which we're going to address in just a minute. But before we jump into the scripture today, there's something that is unique that I want us to catch. In this letter, you're going to see, I'm going to present some facts for you in a moment, where you're going to see that what James does in this transition at chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, is he moves from first generation, first century Jewish Christians, and he is going to address non-followers of Jesus. He is going to actually address non-followers of Jesus in the church. He writes this letter with the understanding that it's going to go out to the 12 tribes that are scattered. They're scattered because of persecution. I want to encourage you to read the story in Acts 8 of Stephen and his stoning. And again in Acts 9 of Saul, one of the greatest Pharisees who went out to kill, to arrest, and to abolish followers of the way. Today known as Christianity for you and I. This persecution was extreme. And these Christians are forced out of Jerusalem. They're forced out of their comfort. They're forced out of their relationships. They're forced out of context. And they're forced into new ways of living, new, new communities. And they're adopting new communities while at the same time learning to be fully devoted followers of Jesus, to be mature in their faith. Let me say it again. These are Jewish Christians. They know religion. They've known it for centuries. They have the Torah. They have the law. They have traditions. They have worship traditions. They have written traditions. But entering into a right relationship with Jesus, a community with the Father, is unique and it's new to them. So they're growing in their faith. They're growing in their knowledge, their applied knowledge. For centuries, they've had head knowledge. They've had a right concept of God. But now they're growing in the right relationship with Jesus and living it out. And they're doing so in foreign lands, with foreign languages and foreign people. What I tell you that for is to simply say that James is going to write here in James, the end of his letter to the church, and it's not broken up in blocks like we do it. We break it up so it's easier for us to learn and follow and and turn to. This was one letter written in succession from the beginning to the end, this narrative letter that was written to the churches. James knew something that you and I need to pay attention to. In this letter addressed to the Christian church, James is going to write to non-believers What should that tell us? It tells us that non-believers were present when this letter was written. They didn't go to Kinko's and have a mass production of this letter that they sent out throughout the community. It would have been read very publicly to the community and they would have received it very publicly as it was relayed to the community. It would have been one letter spoken aloud to everyone. So why is it then that James is going to address non-Christians in this letter? Could it be that James knew something we need to pay attention to and that is this. Non-Christians are paying attention to how we live our lives. They're listening to what we say. 
They're watching how we act. They're looking at how we treat one another. They're paying attention to what we spend our money on. They're paying attention to what we spend our time on. They're, sp- they're paying attention to how we treat one another. And we look at it and say, well, that's just the outside world judging us. No, 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 but, but, and maybe that's the case, but there are some lessons in there that we need to pay attention to. If people are observing how we spend ourselves, how we spend our time, how we spend our treasure and our talent, we need to remember that how we spend those things actually communicates the gospel to an unbelieving world. Do you see what I'm saying? We claim the banner of Christ, and we should, rightfully so. I and the Father are, are one. We are, we are new creations in him. We are co-heirs with Christ. And so we, we, we hold that banner high. We, we are God's biggest cheering section. We want everyone to know who we, whose team we're on, who we are because of whose we are. But make no mistake about it. If I see somebody wearing all red in a bright red truck decked out in Nebraska, you're driving like an idiot, I am going to assume that all Huskers fans are idiots. On the other hand, if I see somebody wearing green, driving a green vehicle that is uh, built around recycled fuel and they're eating hummus and wearing Birkenstocks and they're driving very kind and peace-loving, I'm going to know they're from Oregon. (laughs) And there's an automatic assumption that's tied to that. And I use that as a parody in jest to be silly and playful. But make no mistake about it. When you wave the banner of Christianity really high, people who are not Christians, they have this intrinsic desire to know what Christianity is all about. And their only gospel may be how you spend your money. Their only gospel may be how you spend your time. Their only gospel may be what you do with the gifts and the moments that God gives you. And so I ask you this morning, with your time, your treasure, and your talents, are you busy building a museum of legend, or are you working to create a mission of legacy? James is going to write these non-Christians because he knows they're listening in. He knows they're at church paying attention. All right, here's what he says, 5 verse 1. Look here, you rich people. What a great way to start a conversation, huh? I mean, James has been lacking some Sunday morning coffee or something. He needs to hold on just a minute. Look here, you rich people. Now, what does he mean by rich? Does this mean that being rich is inherently wrong? Absolutely not. Jesus talks about money more than he does heaven, hell, and combined. He surrounds himself with, 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 with rich folks. He loves all these rich folks, but it's what they do with their wealth. Here's what I want to say to you. What I know to be true of the character and the nature and the person of God is that if you're called to be rich, you be rich really well. You go be filthy rich. I want to give you guys each a lottery ticket this morning. You are so blessed to be in church this morning. You have just hit the jackpot. That's it. I mean, you cash in this morning. Here's what I want to promise you. There is a gospel called prosperity gospel. And I actually believe that we're all called to be a little bit of prosperity gospel. I'll explain it. There's a whole thing. Before you start casting stones and tomatoes and whatever, let me explain. I believe in my heart of hearts that every single one of you is called to be rich this morning. Every one of you. You're called to be rich. The Bible says so. James, Hebrews, all of the epistles. He says, all of you should be rich in good deeds. Every one of us is called to be filthy rich in how we live our lives and how we interact with others. That's not to say you're all going to be opulent financially. That's ridiculous. That's actually a gift. Knowing how to make, maintain, and give money away is a gift. It's an art. I only have the back end. Figured out how to give it away. Making it and holding on to it. I got six kids. 
It's my retirement right there. Cha-ching! <laughs> Being rich in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's what you do with what God has given you in the moments that he's given to you that matters. So he says, look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Now, I want to ask and answer a question for you. You want to know how I know that James is writing to non-Christians. There's two schools of thought in this, that he is addressing Christians, but that he's also addressing non-Christians. And I want to suggest to you that I think he's actually describing non-followers of Jesus in a manner that prescribes to everyone. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, we will read scripture sometimes through the lens of description. We'll look at Jeremiah 29, 11, when the Bible says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. And we claim that verse. Yep, that's for me. The problem is he wasn't writing to you. He was talking to Jeremiah for the tribe of Israel. It was very descriptive, a time, a place, a season, an event. But it's also very prescriptive of the heart of God. It prescribes to us what we should know about the nature and the nurture of God. That God is a generous, loving, caring, kind God. That he does know us and love us and care for us. And that he does have a plan for us. And so while he may not have been addressing us, it's good for the whole body. Here, I believe this is descriptive and prescriptive. I think it describes who he's talking to, non-Christians. But it's prescriptive as in it matters to all of us. Why do I think that he's writing to non-Christians? Three reasons. Number one, listen to how he addresses them. Listen here, you rich people. At every turn in this letter, anytime he addresses Christians, he says, dear brothers and sisters, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. You rich people, listen up. There's a turn in how he addresses the people. Number two, every time he addresses believers in a manner that is confrontational, he always calls them to repentance. He calls them to identify the wicked brokenness in their lives and to repent, to literally rip away and to tear off the sin that entangles them. He doesn't do that here. He's not casting judgment. He's not calling them to repentance. He's calling them to realization. And number three, perhaps the most obvious, these are exiles that have been forced out of everything that they've known. They literally... On the day of their death sentence, and what I mean by that is people are dying because of their faith. There's an edict, read it, Acts chapter 9, there's an edict that goes out. There's a law that goes out throughout the region, and there's authority given to them that they can begin to arrest and kill all followers of the way. They run home, they collect what belongings they have, and they hightail it out of there to a land where their lives are not threatened. They left behind all their wealth and all their possessions. They didn't take time to pack their gold bars. They didn't take time to get all their their fine linens and to, to bring all their cars with them. They got what they needed to survive and got out of there. And yet he's gonna say, listen here, you rich people. How is it possible that they're rich when they've just given up everything to keep their life? He's going to go on to describe them as rich landowners. What we know about the Christians is that they're first generation, first century Christians who've been forced out because of exile. How is it possible that they own land in foreign country? It's not. So it's obvious that he's writing, to me anyway, that he's writing to non-Christians, but in a Christian setting, which tells us that non-Christians are paying attention to what's going on in the church and how you talk and how you dress and how you live your life matters to the unbelieving world from the outside looking in. I am preaching really good this morning. 
I need you, that's not an applaud. I need you to get with me. I need, I need to know that you are following me this morning. I give you permission to amen and to hallelujah and to clap, okay? You got, I need some help, Kevin. Bring it out in them, bring it out in them. Come on, listen to me. Pay attention to what he says. Look here, you rich people. This is descriptive. Now he's going to go on to prescribe what we all ought to pay attention to. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. What he's saying is you have a widow maker in your heart and you don't even know it. You have breath in your lungs that is borrowed time. You have blood in your veins that is borrowed time. You are literally a zombie. You are walking around with life to the outside world, but you're actually dead on the inside. And it's just a matter of time. You're literally dying from the inside out. And he goes on to prescribe here, verse 2, 3, and 4. Your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver have become worthless. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This treasure you have accumulated will stand as evidence against you on the day of judgment. What he's saying is you have consumed yourself with building a museum to create a legend for the world to admire you. And in the end, it will amount to nothing. He uses a drastic comparison when he talks about two things. Number one, he says weep and groan. And number two, he talks about it will amount and it will burn up in a fire. The fire because have you ever been to a house fire or with somebody who's ever experienced a house fire or a barn fire? If not, I'm sure you've seen it on television. You show up and you're standing on soggy ashes. And the possessions that you have given your life to are being removed with flathead shovels. That's it. Your life has literally possessionally been amounted to ashes. That's what he means. It's a heap of ashes. It's going to burn up. All that you've done to create this museum of legend, it's going to burn in the end. And what is his response to that? He says, weep and groan in agony. What does this mean? Well, he's drawing a word parallel that the people would absolutely understand. They had paid professional mourners. Someone in community would die. And what they would do is they would pay someone else to mourn with them professionally. They would put on sackcloth and and ripped clothes and they would take ashes and they would heap ashes upon themselves and they would go throughout the public streets. They would be wailing aloud, publicly mourning, which would create two things, a sense of urgency and and a a sense of query. Urgency as, oh, this is now, it's immediate, it's imminent. And and query as in, who died? What happened? they're, They're doing it to pay attention. And he's saying, pay attention. You're, you're the person who's dying. You're the person who, is, who needs to be heaping ashes on his body and ripping his clothes because you're living a lie. You're living a death. Then you don't even realize it. He's saying, wake up everything that you have invested yourself in. This museum of legend that you have accumulated over a lifetime, it is going to amount to a pile of rubble and it means nothing in the end. Wake up is what he's saying. Then he says here, verse 3, your gold and silver have become worthless. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. The treasure that you've accumulated, this, this museum of opulence, this museum of legend, will stand as evidence against you on the day of judgment. For listen, he said, Pay attention. Hear the cries. Hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The wages you held back cry out against you. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. Two things that we need to pay attention to. One is the indictment on the wealthy rich landowners. And two, the hope of the people who are being abused. 
Let's talk about the indictment. The indictment is this. He says, you have built your opulent museums of legend on the backs of those that are, that are the least of these. The marginalized, the misrepresented, the misplaced, the mistreated. They came as foreigners into your community and you had an opportunity to receive them in and to build them up and to help them start anew. But instead, you are taking advantage of them. And I want to give you a modern day parallel of what's going on. These are contractors with contracted employees. They own these large fields, likely family farms. And what they would do is they would contract an individual to come out and to, to reap the harvest, to plow the fields, and to help uh, to, to collect everything that would be sold as goods in the community. And after the end of a job, people, these contracted employees, would come for their pay. They've done the work and they would expect their pay. Today, there are general contractors. Maybe you've ever built a house or you know someone who's built a house or you've built a building. You'll hire a general contractor and that general contractor will subcontract out work. He'll subcontract out the, the rough framing. He'll subcontract out the sheetrock. He'll subcontract out the flooring and the, 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 the electrical and, the, and, and the, the, the waterworks and all that goes into the plumbing. He'll, he'll subcontract all that out. What I know to be true is I know far too many subcontractors who they won't get paid, unless they're union, they won't get paid for the work that they've done until after the job's been complete. So what they'll do is they'll use their own hard-earned money, they'll go purchase the materials they need, they'll go get the sheetrock, they'll buy all the tools they need, they'll get all the screws they need, all the tape and the mud that they need. They'll go in and spend a week, sometimes two weeks, and they'll put up all the sheetrock, cutting, being careful of every corner, they'll tape and mud, they'll come back the next day, they'll sand it off and do another coat, they'll come back the next day, re-sand and do a final coat over the top, and it looks beautiful. And as they go to these contracts, contractors, they'll say, hey, here's the invoice for the work that I did, and I know too many people who have told me horror stories of contractors who said, yeah, I'm just not going to pay you. Well, what do you mean you're not going to pay me? I did the work. It's right there. And the contractor's response is, get a lawyer and take me to court. It would cost more for these contracted employees to go and employ a lawyer to try to get the $8,000 that is owed them than it is just to eat the $8,000 loss. That's what's going on. These rich landowners, they have political power and influence. They have uh, financial wealth and opulence. They have relational connections throughout the community. This is their land. These are their people in power. They are educated individuals. You've got a whole bunch of exiles coming in that don't have the same level of education. They don't have the level of opulence. They don't have the experience. They don't have the family ties. They don't have the land. And so they're going out, doing everything they can to earn an honest day's wage, and these landowners are saying, ha, thanks for doing the work. If you don't like it, take me to court. Well, who are they going to hire? They can't afford a lawyer. And there aren't pro bono lawyers enough to, to take care of them all. And they're not even educated enough if they needed to to know what to do in the courts. And they don't know the right people in power. It's a political game. It's a political party. So there's two things at play here. The indictment is you guys who are building your museums of legend on the backs of the least of these. Shame on you. When you take advantage of others so that you can gain in life, that is a sin. That grieves the heart of God. You are the proverbial bully. When you take advantage of people's calendars, when you take advantage of the relationships, when you take advantage of their finances, when you take advantage of their frailty, all so that you can get another pay raise or get another promotion or advance, even in line at Chick-fil-A, like the lady who cut me off last night, God bless her soul. <laughs> when you 
are constantly using people for personal gain. You are building a museum of opulence to create a legend in your own mind. But here's the other piece of that. What about these honest field workers that are desperately looking for community? They're trying to start over. They want family. They want to belong. They're first generation Christians. They've encountered Jesus and their life has changed forever. But in that change, life still seems so hard. There are still so many trials. Listen to what James says. On the heels of the indictment, he says this. Take heart, my friends. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you've cheated of their pay. The wages you held back crowd against you. The cries of those who harvest your fields, underline this, have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. This is a direct parallel to Exodus 3 when Moses comes encounter with God through a burning bush and he says, Moses, Moses, you go to Pharaoh. You tell him, let my people go. God, who will, who, who, who will I tell him sent me? You tell him I am that I am. You tell him I got a plan and a purpose and I'm gonna send you. Tell them that I have heard their cries for help and I am going to deliver them. This morning, the Lord wants you to know that he hears your cries And he is a God of deliverance. But in order for God to deliver us, we have got to get out of our own way. As long as we are so myopic and focused on building museums that demonstrate the legend that we believe we are, we will limit the mission that God has called us to, which creates a legacy for all eternity. And so what he says then is if you're doing that, mourn and groan and weep in agony. In other words, throw ashes on your head because you've been living a death. You've been living a death. But there is an opportunity for new life. And if you feel oppressed, if you this morning are here and you say, Pastor, I feel like I relate with the marginalized, the misrepresented, the mistreated and the misplaced. I want you to, to take heart and listen in. God hears your cries. They are not falling on deaf ears. And at his appointed time and at his appointed season, he is going to deliver you from your disaster and he is going to use you. I think of the prayer that Jesus prayed for his best friend, Peter. Simon Peter, who he builds the church on, is struggling. He's got these temptations. And Jesus says, Simon, Simon, I want you to know that I prayed for you. I prayed that you'll have strength and courage and that when you go through these trials that you'll be able to turn back and strengthen your brothers. Right now, you may be in a season of life where you feel like your prayers are falling on deaf ears. And what I want to encourage you with is, could it be that like the first generation, first century Christians that had just encountered Jesus and were living to be fully mature, could it be that this season of disaster in your life is an opportunity for you to mature in your faith? Could it be that God is taking you through these trials so that when you get through them, you in in total dependence on him, that you'll be able to turn back and encourage somebody else in the trial? Could it be that that your prayers really aren't falling on deaf ears at all, that God hears your cries and he will answer at the appointed time? Could it be that God knows his timing better than we do? Could it be that God knows his plans better than we do? Could it be that God wants us to mature and to grow And that as long as we're in these trials, we're fully dependent on him. You see, these rich landowners, they weren't dependent on anybody but themselves. But these who were being oppressed were fully dependent on God because they weren't even getting paid for the work that they were doing. They had to rely on God to continue to proverbially give them manna from heaven to provide miracles in their lives. 
And I, I've got to tell you, when I read about how this ends, that people who store up for themselves treasure on earth are gonna, gonna, it's going to be eaten up by moss and rust that destroy, and it's going to be burnt up, it's going to be ashes, versus people who may not have much, but they're relying on the miracles of manna from heaven, and they have eternity to look forward to. I'll tell you, I'll take the miracles of manna every time. I'll take the miracles of manna every time. Rather than being dependent on myself, building a museum that y'all can be impressed with what I've done. All right, check this out. Verse five. You've spent your years on earth in luxury. That word in the original language is comfort. You've worked hard to create comfort for yourself. Satisfying your every desire. People take this verse out of context. They say, well, but doesn't God say that he's gonna give you the desire or grant you the desire of your heart? Yeah, he does. So long as the heart that you possess is in line with God's word, will, and way. So if you're not realizing the desires of your heart, it's probably because your heart is in alignment with God's word, will, and way. It says so right here. You spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. This is ironic. This is like a bunch of cows grazing who are getting ready for the slaughter. If I know that I'm getting ready to die, I'm going to go on a fast. I'm going to be the skinniest cow I can possibly be. I'm going to look so malnourished that you wouldn't want to eat me. We're not going to kill that cow. But these guys are so oblivious. They're going around. They're just eating everything in sight. They're getting fat and bloated. I mean, I'm talking on corn and soybeans and wheat and everything that is out. Like, they're living it up. They're lapping the life of luxury. They're fatting themselves. And they just walk in seemingly unknown. Like, hey, bro, what's this? Oh, boom, dead. Now you're hanging. You're just bleeding out. And they're going to cut you up to pieces. <laughs> that was a little graphic. <laughs> but that's what the Bible says. I don't think they made flannel graphs for that. Some of you young folk in here are like, what's a flannel graph? Find somebody older than 40, ask them, they'll tell you. You fattened yourselves for slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who don't even resist you. They are unable to resist you. You have every opportunity to be a blessing to the broken, but instead you've been a burden to your brothers. You have every opportunity to be a blessing to the broken, but instead you've been a burden to your brothers. How do I know that everyone is your brother and sister? Because the law can be summed up in two things. Love God with every fiber of your being and love your neighbor as yourself. They're your brothers. They're your sisters. They don't have to look the same as you, have the same tan as you, the same hair as you. If you preach up here according to Chris, you gotta be bald. That's the thing. (laughs) Amy, my friend Amy's getting ready to preach in a couple months. I hate to see what your hair is gonna look like, Amy. Sorry. It's gotta go. Gotta go. That's gonna be awesome. Let me just, let me, shameless plug. February 15 and 16 uh, is, our, and 17 is our men's conference. This year is, uh, uh, the whole theme is about influence. It's gonna be awesome. I've got two speakers that are coming in. My buddy Jared Little's flying in from LA. My buddy Dylan's coming from Iowa. It's gonna be amazing. Uh, I need you to go. I need you to come with me. It's gonna be awesome. This year, we're staying at the Inn, which is literally a hotel. It's a modern hotel looking thing, but we got 300 acres of fun. It's gonna be an amazing time together. Uh, but ladies, hang on because Amy's preaching while I'm gone. It's gonna be awesome. So get you, yeah, yeah, it's going to be awesome. You can go register right now, stepupconference.com, and check it out. Hey, right now, uh, to help me with the message, I want to invite to stage Justin Ingett, who is our pastoral resident. Justin is in his second year of seminary. He's uh, about halfway through his second year. He's working on a Master of Ministry degree, which means a lot of reading uh, and a lot of conversations, but it's awesome. Justin is doing this pastoral residency where in in three years, he's learning really kind of every aspect of the ministry. So the last year and a half, he's been working really closely with pastoral 
Pastor Alex and doing worship stuff. He's also been working with our youth ministry, leading worship on Wednesdays and developing. And the next year and a half, he's going to begin to transition. He's going to do work with Pastor Glenn. He's going to get to do work with me, uh, all kinds of fun stuff as he works toward his master's degree and gets ready to exercise his call to ministry. Justin has been doing some pretty cool stuff recently. And when I heard about it, it really speaks to the heart of this message. And so I want to invite Justin to share with you this morning some of what God's been doing in your life. So tell me a little bit about what's been going on. What's this new ministry you've been involved with? Well, hello. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Well, so basically, uh, a little while back, a buddy of mine and I decided to sit down and do what we could with what we had. Some of you have been involved already, so we appreciate that. But uh, basically what it was called is bragging rights to blessings. And essentially what it was is we would just pick a random place. We would fast and we'd pray that God would take us to the right place. We would show up and we would sit down and we'd turn on Facebook Live. We put a little button there and people were allowed to, to partner with us to help leave the biggest possible tip that we could. I know it sounds, <laughs> sounds kind of stupid, but uh, basically we, again, we fasted and prayed. We sat down at a place and the first day with the help of everybody that was kind of watching along, we ended up leaving the gentleman with a $370 tip. The, and that was, that was great. He was amazed. He was blown away. He had tears in his eyes slightly. He, there was no slobbering, wet, no snot coming out or anything. But uh, so that was, that was a great tip. And we thought that that was, it was literally, we just thought it was going to be a one-time thing. When I got back into Blair, one of my friends came up with a $100 bill. She's like, hey, this is for next week. We're like, next week? All right, next week. So we ended up doing that for about five weeks straight, six weeks straight. The second week, we ended up with $400. The, the third week, it was $660. The, the fourth and fifth week, we ended up with over $1,000 each time. And uh, again, basically, it was, it was my buddy Justin and I. We left $20 each, but we gave everybody else the opportunity to partner with us and, and to move along and, and help change somebody's mood first, possibly their day slash life. That was kind of just the whole goal. Yeah, awesome, Justin. It's such a cool ministry. Talk to me about the origin. How did you realize that you had the ability to influence others to make a bigger impact? Right, so, all right. Anybody in here ever been to a Husker game? Just, just by sound of a, by sound, anybody? Woo! All right. All right, so a few years back, I had never been to a Husker game. I have a friend that had season tickets. He was like, one of my favorite things to do is to bring people to their first Husker game. Awesome. He's like, however, you have two rules, two rules. First of all, you have to wear red, right? I'm not talking about black with some red on it. I'm not talking about white with some red. You have to wear red. I didn't have any. I went and bought a shirt. I'm like, all right, I can do that. It's like second rule, you have to participate. We're going to be loud. We're going to cheer on our audience. We're going to do this. I was like, I like to be loud. (laughs) I I could do that. So while we're there, you know, and this was was a couple years ago. So uh, I think we were losing the game coming into the second half. Shocking. And, uh, laugh, whatever. But, hey, we came back and we won that game, by the way, just so you guys know. Yeah. Very so about three quarters of the way through, I witnessed something that I'd never seen the likes of before. And that was the wave at Husker Memorial Stadium. Has anybody ever witnessed that and been a part of it? All right. So as you know, it starts off and it goes all the way around and it does that a couple times and then it, and then it goes super slow motion and then it comes back around really fast a couple times. So when I saw that, I was like, that was amazing and that was awesome. And the thought that just kept sticking with me, I was like, I wonder who started it. It was probably like the student section, just a bunch of people. So a couple years went by and this year, as we started doing the bragging rights to blessings thing, uh, God put it in my mind. He's like, you know, I want to show you something. 
is actually, and I didn't say this part before, but we went to we went bowling, and some gentleman, this was right when we were doing all the tipping thing, a gentleman gifted us tickets to a game. Like, I'd never met him before. He's like, hey, you want to go to a game this weekend? He gave us tickets. So while I was there, I was looking, and it was, you know, while we were losing this year. Um, I'm looking, and, like, the whole entire crowd is just like, the team is like, and I'm like, we should start a wave. So I've got my family with me, and I, I get the family to, to do, like, just there's five of us. We do a little wave, all right? And then I, I'm like, all right, that's not enough. So I'm getting loud. I'm like, come on, section, let's get up there. And then I get it to, to the whole row goes down to the end, and we're kind of by the tunnel. It goes about that far. I'm like, no, no, come on. So I'm yelling. I'm trying to get people excited. The whole section in front of me, I was like, come on, guys, we're going to do the wave. Finally, the people in front of me, they look around. They're like, come on, dude, we're trying to watch the game. Can you keep it down? That's, that's the kind of season we had this year. But uh, so finally, though, I get the whole entire section of ball. We get it to go kind of into the horseshoe. It stops there. Everybody looks back. They're like, you're going to do it again? I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do it again. So <laughs> I do it again, and it comes out. It goes about halfway through the horseshoe, and it stops. Everybody all of a sudden, they look back at me, and I'm looking back at them. I'm like, all right, here we go. We get it again, and it finally goes all the way around. Comes all the way around and it comes to us. And now while it's while it's coming, it's over on the other side. The people that were in front of us that were like, "Come on, guys, settle down." While they were looking at us, and they're like, "It's coming! It's coming! It's making it! It's making it! Here it comes!" So like they were the most excited when it got back over to here. And then it came back and it went around and it did it twice. And then the the play resumed, so we didn't actually get the whole the whole thing. Nonetheless, what I realized in that moment was ninety thousand people. Well. We have consecutive sellouts. There's 90,000 seats there. We'll say it's probably 80,000 people because of the, the, the season that we're having, but 80,000 plus people because of one guy with a little bit of initiative, a little bit of a, a voice and a, and a plan. I influenced that many people to do something. That right there, that, then God put it on my heart. He's like, look, one person has the ability to affect change. One person, just like the ocean, you drop a rock in the water and it ripples outwards. One person can do something and you can affect yeah. the lives of many people. Yeah. So, Justin, right. talk about how that impacted not one story that you told me wasn't just about the employee that was serving you, but that the tip that you left them had such a profound impact on everybody else that that person shared with everybody else and the influence carried. Talk about when you went back to the restaurant. Right. So, that was, so the way that we set it up, we'd always leave the, the tip thing open for the rest of the night. We'd have to go back and deliver a little bit of money. Again, our goal was to affect their mood, but I had, a, I had an agenda, I'm not going to lie, and my agenda was to be able to go and spread the gospel. First, by loving on people. Secondly, by actually speaking the gospel to them. So when I went back in there, uh, the gentleman that we tipped that first time, he's like, he came up to me, he's like, dude, you don't know what that $370 tip, in my mind it was like, I had visions of $10,000 tips and we left 370, but he's like, you don't know what that little tip did for the atmosphere and morale of the whole entire restaurant that night. I tipped out the other waiters. So first of all, this guy was in a hurting situation. That's why he was even working this second job. It was the second day. And uh, the first thing that he did with it was he went and he courteously gave it to everybody else that was working with him. He said that quickened up the step of everybody that was around, that elevated the whole mood of the whole entire restaurant. And what you've got to imagine is you guys have went out to eat. If you would have got a server that was upset, you would have went and been upset somewhere else. Or you would have got a server that's happy, treated you well. That's going to transfer on. So the little tiny things that we do, it's not just the people that are directly 
affected by it, but it's everybody. The ripple effect, the spider web out, it goes on to absolutely everybody. People are watching, just like the message you talked about today. People, non-believers, believers alike, they're all watching. Yeah. One of the things that makes me sad, my wife actually was a server twice uh, during our marriage. And I asked her one time, I said, hey, who are the worst tippers? And she said two things. High school kids on prom dates. (laughs) And Christians who just got done with church. True story. One person with one idea can change the world. And this is just an example of getting creative about giving yourself away and making a difference. Justin, I'm going to thank you, man. I love you. Appreciate you. Go get ready to lead us in worship. If I, if I may, real quick, we do have the whole point of bragging rights to blessings was not to, to be able to brag about tips, but we wanted to set up events to where we could take and have fun and use that money to bless somebody. Well, on December 29th, we're going to be doing that right here at the New Yorker in town with a rock, paper, scissors tournament for a young lady that was here that suffered three strokes as a, at a very young age. So I just wanted to plug that real quick. If you guys have some time on the 29th and you want to get taken down in some rock, paper, scissors, bring it! What are you building? What are you building? What are you building with the way you live your life? What are you building with the way you spend your money? Uh, What are you building with the way you spend your time? What are you building with the way you spend the gifts that God has given you? And I want to argue that the issue is an issue of perception. You see, we view everything as ownership. When God has uniquely created us to view everything through the lens of stewardship. We, We view everything through what we've worked to create. We write songs about it. I work hard for my money. And songs about, if I had a million dollars. And all kinds of songs about money that we work hard for. That it's ours. We work hard for our money. We've done this. We've done that. And we deserve, we deserve. It's mine. It's mine. And what God says is, let me remind you that I am the God of the heavens and the earth. That every good and perfect gift comes down from me, the Father of heavenly lights. That nothing you have is yours. It's mine. And I've created you with the awesome privilege to be a steward over what I've given you. Not just money, but how you speak to people. How you live your life. The things that you purchase. What you do with the gifts and the experiences that I've given you. I've called you to be a good steward. Not to build a museum of artifacts and trinkets and things that you're impressed with. That you think others will be impressed with. But God has created us to build a a mission. That we could build a legacy that impacts life for eternity. Somebody's eternity hangs in the balance based on how you and I live our lives. Somebody's eternity hangs in the balance. You and I may be the only gospel that anybody ever hears or sees. And before you ever get an opportunity to share the gospel, you have every opportunity to live out the gospel. So I ask you this morning, what are you building? Do you really need a second house? Do you realize that if every house in America were filled, vacation houses, rental houses, apartments, condos, if every vacant house were were filled, we would eliminate the homeless population in our country and beyond. 
And yet we can't seem to build houses fast enough to keep up. And that's not an indictment on somebody who has a rental house or a vacation home. That's not what I mean. But I'm asking, is that something you own or is that something you're stewarding? I've been watching the stock market this week. It's, it's, it's pretty painful and I only have a few pennies in there. My wife and I look at it and we say, we never set out to retire anyway. Can you, ima- can you imagine me retired? What are you going to do today? I'll sit around. All right. She'd kill me. We looked at what pennies we have in our retirement. My wife said, we came into this world with nothing. We're going to retire with it too. So what? I have my health. I have my kids. And I have my God and an opportunity to give away what I have. Come on, church. What are you building? Are you building into your legend or are you building into the legacy of someone's future? You have every opportunity to make an eternal impact with how you live your life starting right now. Some of you need to weep and you need to wail and you need to groan in agony for the death that you've been living. You've been living to please every one of your selfish desires. You're driving your selfish desire. You're eating your selfish desire. You're wearing your selfish desire. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with, I have a nice truck, I wear nice clothes, I have a nice house, I have nice things. But they don't define me. And I do everything I can to give it all away, even if it's even in the little things. I want to be honest, last Christmas was bad for me and my family. We every year let our kids go online and check out what they want and put it in the ad cart to Amazon and we go through and we check it all off. We have a budget. A budget and well, last Christmas, we blew our budget every which way from Sunday and we got everything we thought the kids wanted and it came to Christmas morning and they opened up their presents and you know what was shocking? Was the look of disappointment in our kids' faces when it was over. Well, that wasn't the color I wanted. Well, you're not as tall as I expect you to be, so shut up. Oh, is that it? How come he got more than me? So this year we told our kids, no wish list, no proverbial Santa Claus, no checkout in the cart online. You don't get to ask for a thing. Mom and I are going to pray about it. We're going to put a budget together. And if we decide that we want to bless your little tail with something beyond the food that we give you, the clothes that are on your back and the house that you get to sleep in, you will be grateful. You know what my son said to me? two days ago, he came and said, Dad, it's crazy. Christmas is almost here. I haven't even thought about it. I haven't even thought about presents this year. It's been awesome. It's like, it's like low stress. And I said, good, then you won't be disappointed when you get nothing. <laughs> I'm winning at life. <laughs> My point is that's something simple. It's taking the emphasis off of what they want and it's teaching them to be content with what they have and putting an external focus on what we do. What are you building? What are you building? A museum of a legend of yourself or a mission that creates a legacy for all of eternity.